0: Good morning, White Oak. Ooh, that was exciting. Good morning, White Oak. Hey, thank you very much. Way to go, guys. It's good to see each of you here today. And we sang that last song, Raise a Hallelujah. What I'd like for you to do is to take your program. On the front of that program, it has some places for notes. I want you to write down one word or a phrase of what it is that you're taking before God today. Because one of the things that's so true about our gathering together, and thank you, Zach, for that, <clears throat> is the vulnerability of coming before the throne of God. It will open up doors for you. And what is it that you're talking to God about today? Write that on the front of, front of the program. Just go ahead and write it down. Keyword, code word, whatever it might be. Code number. You don't want all the neighbors doing that reading your stuff. You know, one of the things I appreciate whenever I'm over speaking to our partners in the Bhutanese church is every once in a while, I'll just say hallelujah, and they say hallelujah back to me. That's the only, only word we both understand, <laughs> because they're speaking in Nepali, and I'm speaking in English, and you can just kind of see that, so hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. We are going to praise God today because of what he's done in our lives. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's in these moments that we raise that hallelujah to you. Whether it's in the midst of the struggle that we're in right now, the chaos that is a part of our lives, or whether we're in that time of calm, that time where we're hearing your voice clearly through your word, and we're following your path steadfastly. Father, there, there are those things in our lives that seek to derail us from our faith. And Father, as we read through Romans, we see how Paul speaks to the church in that first century. The number of things that kept trying to pull them away from you, God, pull them away from you, Jesus, not pay attention or allow you to live strong in their lives, Holy Spirit. And so it's in those words, Lord, as we're reading today, we ask you to teach us and we ask you to remind us of your great love for us. Father, we, I lift up to you those who are here, whether they are sick and afflicted or whether they are in the midst of strength right now, that you would speak to them through your word. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're in Romans chapter 6 today. We're in the middle of a series we call Romans, The Greatest Letter Ever. I'm I'm amazed. I don't know if you think about this stuff. uh, Somebody asked me one time about my personality. They said, basically, your personality is fascinated, that you are fascinated with what the future might bring or what might be happening around us. And I'm fascinated by this idea of communication. I wonder in 100 years, will we still communicate to each other with 144 characters in a tweet? (laughs) I wonder if we'll still send emails. I mean, I'm thinking that in a hundred years from now, I won't be around. You'll be glad about this because the next thing I'm going to tell you is we'll be writing sermons and all I have to do is think my sermon, think your name, and you will hear my voice and my sermon in your brain. And then you can ask questions back. I'll hear that and I'll answer those questions. I can hardly wait till that time when I could actually be in your head. You know, I don't know what that's going to look like in a hundred years. Uh, Nancy and I celebrated our 45th wedding anniversary in August and we dated for about a year before that time and Nancy would write to me two, three, four times a week she'd write a letter while we were dating we would be millionaires if we still had the postage that we spent on those letters we also called each other at least once a week sometimes twice a week on this thing that was called a telephone that had this rotary dial And he had this process that was called collect call. How many of you remember collect long-distance phone calls? You guys. How many of you have seen it in a movie? You know, I mean, collect phone calls. We would be multimillionaires if we had never made any collect telephone calls to each other. Now, Nancy wrote to me a lot. I know that part. But I wrote to her way more. And she's collected my... Well, I'm going to show you in a minute. I'm going to prove it. But... She's collected my letters and they're in in several boxes and they're in a uh, a secure location in the Rocky Mountains because nobody's (laughs) going to read what I wrote. But just to prove to you that I sent way more letters to her than, than she did to me, I've got this video. Take a look. know that's real because it's in black and white. (laughs) We have a lot of fun when we think about those things that we wrote to each other. In the New Testament, when communication was difficult, they would send letters back and forth. In fact, that was true of the whole culture at that time, that if you had some kind of information you needed to share someplace else, you couldn't pick up a telephone, you couldn't send a text, you couldn't, you know, nobody's going to pay attention. You had to write a letter and then send it. And oftentimes when you sent the letter, you sent the letter with a trusted person who would read the letter out loud because not everybody read the language in that time. They'd read the letter out loud. They'd explain some of those parts and they would answer questions. It's interesting that in this, in this Roman letter that Paul sends this letter out to the Roman church. Probably the Roman church met in house churches And so this letter would circulate, and the person who brought the letter from Paul to Rome was a lady by the name of, I knew I'd forget her name, (laughs) no, I'm sorry, lady by the name of Phoebe. Phoebe lived close, just southwest of Corinth. In fact, here's a map of that, that area at the time. You can see where it says Macedonia, right in the middle, right down towards the bottom of that is Corinth. Where Phoebe lived was just southwest of that. Thanks for the arrow, Aaron. That is amazing, Lauren. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, it was, from Corinth then to Rome is 1,360 miles. About Go the other way. There you go. Oh, my goodness. About 1,360 miles. That's the distance from here to Santa Fe, New Mexico. So you can imagine how far that would be. Phoebe takes this letter from Paul in the 16th chapter. We'll talk about this a little bit later. But in the 16th chapter, verses 1 and 2, we're introduced to Phoebe. And Paul says, she is great help to me. I'm amazed because in the first century, what Paul is basically saying is, the woman who brought you the letter will explain this letter to you, and she'll answer questions. And so they would be together in a house kind of setting, uh, maybe 20, 30 people maybe at the most, and she would begin to read the letter, and people would ask her questions about it. We're up to the sixth chapter now here today. And, and Paul has been talking to the Roman church about the challenge that they face. And the challenge they face is there are two groups there's the group of Romans who are leading the church at that time because the original church started earlier in the 40s, A.D. 40. But by eighty forty nine 49, the Jews had, had um, caused some turmoil, and Claudius, the emperor at the time, had tossed all the Jews out of Rome. He didn't let any of them live there. In about a three-year period, Claudius is dead, Nero takes over, and Nero lets the Jews back in. And so the Jews have come back into the Christian church. They were believers in Jesus. They were the original leaders. But by this time, the Romans, who were Gentiles, didn't really understand the Old Testament law. They were leading the church. And so you you had the Jews on one side, the Jewish believers, who said, wait a minute, we have the heritage. We have been God's people forever. We have privilege on our side. And we should be leading. The Roman believers are saying, wait a minute, you've been gone, and during that time, we've seen the church grow, and we are the leaders now. We have power. And so there was this argument going on who's in charge? Who's leading? And Paul finds out about this while he's in Corinth. He writes a letter, 16 chapters in our uh, Bibles today. There were no chapters or verses at that time, because he realized how many questions he was being asked. And he's answering those questions in the Roman letter. He's probably had this conversation with Phoebe where they've they've talked about, here are the things we need to say, here are the challenges we need to face, and when they ask you questions, here's some other answers you might give. We, we don't know what that conversation was like. We have the written word of God today, and so we're paying attention to that as we go along. But I want to encourage you. The message series is on our website as well as on our app, and you can find those at com, or you can pick up our app, put that on your phone, and listen to the things that we've been saying over these last several weeks. As I said earlier, Paul's dealing with some struggles, and, and in the sixth chapter where we're going to land today, he's dealing with the abuse of grace. You see, this idea of grace is receiving something that I don't deserve. And, and the question starting to come about is, how do, we, how do we get this thing? And in the fifth chapter, he's had this conversation around the challenge of Adam's sin. For those of you who are believers, you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, Adam sins. Adam decides he's not going to follow God. He decides to eat the fruit that that Eve has presented to him, even though God said, hands off. And as a result of that, history takes a right turn. And God has to deal with his creation and the issues of forgiveness now when it was created perfectly. For whatever Adam did to us and whatever we have inherited from Adam, Paul talks about that in the fifth chapter. And what he says is the first Adam brought sin into all the world, but the second Adam brings forgiveness. And I think one of the reasons he writes the fifth chapter is to say to people, because there were a number of people going, Well, you know, we just can't help it. We're Adam's children and we're going to sin. We're Adam's children and we're far from God. And so that's our excuse for our sin. And what. Paul says, no, 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 what you don't understand is that Jesus, because he is God and because he pays the penalty for sin, whatever you were getting from Adam that you didn't know anything about, Jesus wiped that out. So that now you are accountable for your sin. You really are, as Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't use Adam as your excuse for sin. It's you yourself. He delivers the bad news and, and the, the, the people I'm sure are crushed because just like we who are Americans, we just really have a hard time believing we're sinners. We have a hard time believing that we could be separated from God. I mean, after all, we're the greatest country in the world. Greatest economy in the world. God ought to be glad we're on His side. Right? I mean, that, that's what's going on here even in the first century. And, and that's not true. We have we are dead in our sin. But in the sixth chapter, we begin to see this aspect that God's adopted us into his family. In fact, at the end of Romans chapter 5, it says that even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so we have a door open to come into the, to the kingdom of God. In fact, that's our big idea today. While we talked about the wages of sin is death, our big idea today is this. I'm not dead. I'm not dead. As a follower of Jesus, I'm not dead. I am alive, and I'm not not burdened by my sin. Now, though grace benefits me, it's not about me, and it's not about you. It is about God. It's about what God does. His grace frees us from the power of sin and the penalty of death and separation from God. That's something we ought to revel in. That's something we ought to have a lot of joy in the midst of. Grace is about who God is and what he's done for me. None of this is by my effort. In fact, it's not by my effort that I can be made right with God. It's only through God's work that I can come back into the family. By his grace, I'm freed from the power of sin and from the penalty and separation. Paul's written to the Romans that all of them have sinned. And they are pretty beat up by that message. Meaning you can't justify yourself. You can't pay the penalty. You can't be just as if you'd never sinned because you have. It's God's work and his will to do it for us. We accept his work on our behalf. We've seen the mess that we've made. We see the mess that we're in. And we focus on God. And when we focus on him, he's willing and able to intervene on our behalf. That's why those three songs we sang as we were worshiping God, we were reminded again that he steps into our history. He steps into our lives. He is willing to enable us to be free. That's what chapter 5 was all about. And now in chapter 6, some new thoughts. In fact, chapter 6 through 8, Paul is now speaking to, okay, if grace is in your life, how do you live? If grace is in your life, why, is, why are there still struggles? If grace is in your life, where's the power coming from? And those three things we're going to take a look at over these next two weeks. Today, particularly, we're going to dive in to the beginning of Romans chapter 6. And I put the wrong, I put the wrong uh, reference on here. This is actually Romans 6, even though it says Romans 1. Would you put that up for us, please, Lord? Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. I put 1, that's my fault. Do not blame any of my tech people. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, the question that's coming about here at the end of chapter 5 as we move into chapter 6 is this. If grace is a response to my sin, if grace is what God does when I sin, how do I get more grace? Aha, great idea. I'll sin more. The more I sin, the more grace God has to give so that he can forgive me. And here's what Paul says. This is really strong language right here. He says, by no means. Now, we only hear that as English, but it's the Greek words, two words, "May meginetah. Can you say "May meginetah to me? Let me hear you. Me-gin-a-ta. Try it one more time. Meginetah. There you go. Now you know Greek. Brandon, you can send that out to your seminary professors. You already know Greek. Meginita is a strong phrase. Paul's not saying, guys. He's saying, no. He's saying, are you crazy? What kind of a silly idea is that? That's all in that little phrase. In fact, in some places, it is such a strong word that it would sound like a curse word. No. No. How can you think these kinds of things? Paul's pointing out this strange thinking about grace. You see, we're cynics there in the crowd, and they're probably thinking, well, man, you know, how do we get more grace? Paul, you speak about it all the time. Well, let's send some more. And Have you ever heard that? that Basically what grace does is gives us all a blank check. That, That whatever we do, God will forgive. That it doesn't matter what happens from this day forward we're in. Paul says, come on. Here's what Paul's doing. In the, in the first part of Romans, Paul pray, plays the prosecuting attorney. He says, you've all sinned. No hope. In The next part of those first five chapters, he becomes the defense attorney when he says, but Jesus has paid your penalty, and so you are not guilty. Sounds pretty good. In the 6th, 7th, and 8th chapter, Paul becomes the pastor of the church and says, as a result of this truth, how do you live? How do you live out the truth that the grace of God is alive in your life? And it should change us and change us radically. That's what he's saying here. He says that we've died to sin. The sin no longer is the controlling power in our lives, and it's not an enslaving tyrant anymore. I'm not powerless over sin, Because I have power in me. ha! It's not a pleasant thought, but it's a vivid reminder of how awful sin is and how powerful God is. So how do we die? We die when we give up our old lives in exchange for the new ones in Jesus. And here's what Paul says about that death in chapter 6. He says, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? I want to stop just for a minute and look at that word baptism for a minute. One of the things that we need to realize is that back in the 1600s or so when King James authorized his translation, there were already churches doing a variety of different things and he didn't want a rebellion on his hands if he spoke to different churches and so he just used the word baptism here. The word means immersion. And so anytime you read baptism or baptize in the New Testament it means immerse. Sometimes it's talking about Baptism of the Holy Spirit means being immersed in the Holy Spirit or letting the Holy Spirit engulf you. Sometimes it is baptized with fire, meaning this fire surrounds you. You're totally under it. In this case, and in Acts chapter 2 and a variety of places throughout the book of Acts, it's talking about being immersed in water. And really, the words would just simply say, do not all of you uh, who have been immersed into Jesus... We're immersed into his death. And we were buried, therefore, with him by immersion into death. That this amazing picture that takes place. Let's go ahead and finish the verse. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. I think, I think the picture here is important. Some have re- referred to baptism as the watery grave. That it's here the dead man goes in and he is buried. And that's Paul's point here. You're united with Christ. You're in a special relationship with him. You're in a living union with Christ. And the picture is important because it it reminds me of how powerless I am to forgive myself. And so when I was lowered into the water as a 19-year-old, I was reminded again that I don't have the power to forgive myself. I, I don't call the shots here. God takes care of that work. And that picture is every time that we see someone immersed in a Christ. And that's why we encourage people who want to follow Jesus to be immersed. Because that's the word used here. Paul's saying, in essence, that's your line in the sand. I think the other reason for immersion is that you totally are separated from the world at that point in time. You can't breathe. You're not in the air It's a reminder, again, Paul will use it later on in a variety of his writings to remind us of the surety of our faith. Remember when you were baptized, you were separated from. Remember, because of your baptism, you are a part of the kingdom of God. Remember, and you can trust what God is gonna be doing in your life. So Paul's writing here in these first six chapters, he says you're saved by grace, that you're saved through faith, and that you're connected to Jesus when you're immersed at baptism. And now he says live. And that's why our big, big idea today is I'm not dead. I'm not dead. I'm not powerless in the midst of this because God's going to do something in my life. Well, let's, let's move on. There, there are a couple of words I want you to know. As grace releases us from, from sin. There are four words I want us to, to notice from the text in chapter six that are important to us. First word, and they all begin with the letter P. So the first word is power. Power. There's a sense in this life that I make everything about me. What will I get out of this deal? How will this benefit me? How can I stay in control? How can I be in charge? How, how's this going to make me look better? <laughs> you see, sin is not just about what I do, but it's about why I do it. My attitudes, it's mine. I want it. I need this. Sin has power. And over and over again, we expect God to take us where we are to save us and then to leave us alone. Most people see this conversion aspect that, you know, I'm kind of walking along all of a sudden, ding, God gets my attention, I realize I'm a sinner, I become a Christian, and then God walks off the page again and I can live however I want to. That's not what Paul says here. Paul says this changes everything, folks. This is one of the reasons why in India, before we will immerse a believer in India, we ask them to spend 30 to 45 days studying the Word of God. Because in India, what happens if you are immersed into Jesus? You are cut off from your family. In fact, we've had a number of our believers beaten up because they decided to be baptized into Christ. The, the The culture there recognizes that when you decide to follow Jesus and you are immersed, you went all in. You went all in. We we are. I mean, I love the fact that we live in a place where we can worship freely. But the challenge of living in that situation is we don't realize how big the step is when we decide to follow Jesus. It changes everything for us. We just see it as another thing that Americans can do or not do. And what Paul is saying here is that this, the power of Jesus comes into my life to overcome the power of sin. Sin's power seeks to keep me focused on myself, on my wants, on my ease. There's no law for my behavior. In fact, there's a philosophical term that's used there. It's, it's antinomianism. Ooh, that's a big one. Antinomianism. The way well, I remember it is anism. Nobody can tell me no. That's what antinomianism is. There's no law here. And and that's how oftentimes we want to live our lives, as if there's, there's no rules for the future. I mean, it sounds silly, but it's true. And what happens is that Jesus' death breaks the power of sin in my life and brings new power into my life. He, in essence, takes those slave chains that were around my neck, my wrists and my, my ankles, and breaks them, and they fall to my feet. He does that. I don't take them off myself. And then he brings the Holy Spirit into my life to change me and to bring me that power. Grace gives me power and gives me reason to do the the good that God has in store for me. That's why I can begin to do good. That's why I can pack a trailer for Niger. That's why we can build church buildings in India. That's why in the midst of our cannonball initiative, we can raise money to build a building in Ross. That's why God gives us those opportunities, not so he he doesn't save us by those good works. Because he saved us, we do those good works. The second word I want you to be aware of is penalty. Penalty. There is a penalty for my sin. Somebody has to pay for it. And that's what Romans 6 says. Jesus pays for us. Sin put us into prison. And and Jesus takes us out of prison. He takes those chains off of us. Why would we continue to put the chains back on? Sin put us behind the bars of guilt and shame and deception and fear. We were locked away. No way out. We were bound up. To a wall of misery. But Jesus broke through. He paid our bill, bail, excuse me, paid our bail. And not only that, He served the time that we should have served. He paid the price we should have paid. He satisfied our times behind bars. He paid our penalty and set us free. And when He died, and when we joined Him, our old self died. Our old self, our sin self died, and we are free. And then that text says that we're raised to walk in life. You don't have to remain in that cell, cowering in fear, back in the corner, afraid of what's going to come through the door next. Well, let me tell you, we've already sung about those things, right? We talked about the enemies that could come against us, the unbelief that God would fight on our behalf, that there would be storms in our lives, that there are fears still for us. But what Romans chapter 6 says is we don't have to cower in the corner afraid of what's coming through the door next. Some of us have quite a list. Some of us have amazing, awful things that have happened in our lives. I was talking with somebody at the end of the last service, and here's here's what she said to me. She said, I realize that my past sin may describe me, but because of Jesus, it does not define me. Because of Jesus, it does not drive me. Because of Jesus, I'm changed. And that's true for you today if you're a follower of Jesus. You do not have to stay with those chains around you. It's one of the reasons that we do celebrate recovery here on Monday nights for many folks who are caught up in their hurts, habits, hang-ups, and addictions, whatever those things might be, is that we keep putting the chains back on because we know how to live with the chains. We don't know how to live in freedom. And and that's why we encourage you to be connected in groups because there will be stories where people will tell you, Hey, man, I have struggled with this. This is what helped me. And what helps me is for us to be together. It's one of the reasons why God brings the church together on a weekly basis. It's so that we can bring strength to each other and say, man, I know you're struggling along, but how can I put my arm around you? How can I help you take the next steps? So in just a little bit, we're not ready for it yet, but in a few minutes, whenever we do communion, we're going to hold on to those cups that you're past, past. And we're going to all do that together because we're going to be reminded again that the church meets together. And encourages one another. This idea of penalty here is that God opens that door up for us. I mean, preferring prison over freedom makes no sense. And that's why Paul says, May it never be. Do not do this. The picture's clear. What does prison have that you still want? I mean, do you want that separation? Do you miss the guilt and the homesickness and the dishonesty? I mean, do you, do you have fond memories of lies and the feeling of being forgotten and ignored? Did your life have more meaning and joy when you were rejected and dejected? Do you really want to see that sinner in the mirror again? Man, I think that's, what, that's what's amazing to me is whenever I turn my back on the truth of Romans 6, I'm back in that prison again. Why would I go there? He paid the penalty for me. It's time to walk out. Paul says that without this death, without this burial, you cannot have life. And that's not some teaching on your best life ever. That's the reality that the wages of sin is death. And without dealing with sin, God's way, there's no life. Beginning now and lasting into eternity. Isn't that an amazing deal? Here's what one writer wrote about that. He says, Christ's death and resurrection signaled to the world that the kingdom of God is not reserved for good people. It's reserved for forgiven people. He went on and wrote this. It was the death of Christ that makes the kingdom of God available to you. Is that fair? No, it's better than fair. It's grace. Someone once asked me, why, why do I have to die, Rick? I mean, here it is. It's not pretty, it's, but it's true. Until I die, I will always try to reach God on my own terms. I will always try to be in charge of my relationship with Him. Until I die, I'm still in charge. And that's why I have to die. And that's why that picture of baptism where I'm lowered into the grave with Jesus, then I rise up to walk with Him again. I mean, I will always try to bargain, barter, banter, or benefit from this exchange. I have to die. I have to have a whole new way to be alive so that I can follow Christ wholeheartedly. I mean, there are a variety of ways why I might say no to ungodly behavior. I might say no because I'll look bad. I might say no because I'll be excluded from the social circles that I really want to be a part of. I might say no because God will not give me health, wealth, and happiness. I might say no because God will send me to hell. I might say no because I hate myself in the morning and lose my self-respect, but in each of those places, when I say no that way, I'm still in charge. Tim Keller writes it this way. He says, Virtually all of these incentives use self-centered impulses of the heart to force compliance to external rules, but they do very little to change the heart itself. The motive behind them is not love for God. It is a way of using God to get beneficial things self-esteem, prosperity, or social approval. And that is why Paul is adamant that we have to die to sin. We have to become single-minded. Here's what it says in Romans 6, 18. It says, having been set free from sin, add the word we, have become slaves of righteousness. That once those slaves chains come off of me, now I've chosen a new master. And I want to be like Jesus. I want him to be in charge of my life, not me anymore. The sense here is we have the freedom to choose the one to whom we offer ourselves as slaves. We cannot be delivered from slavery to sin without the liberating power of God. And so, because of the power, the penalty, the third P word is pursue. I have to pursue. You see, once I become alive, I can pursue God, I can pursue his way of living. We're called to pursue a holy lifestyle, but only if our highest love is God himself can we love and serve all people, family, classes, races. I mean, why do we decide to pack a trailer out here with clothing for Niger? Oh yeah, some of us will feel good about that. Oh yeah, some of us have way too crowded closets and it'll make us feel good about the fact that we could give away some of our clothing that somebody else could wear. By the way, that should be clothing that you would wear, not clothing that you were thinking about shining in the car with this afternoon, all right? Because I want what's best for other people because of what God's done in my life because of how he's changed. I want to pursue God in the midst of that. Unless we understand the gospel, we are always obeying God for our own sake and not for his. We move to obeying God by our internal desire to please Him and to show Him both our loving gratitude and our lives for His grace. You say no to sin because now you have a new master. Someone wrote this, When I realized I had a Savior who died for my sins, I felt incredibly indebted to Him. I made the decision to live my life as His daughter, and I want Him to be proud of me. When I struggle with temptation, I quickly remember His sacrifice on my account. If I chose to willingly indulge in sin, I feel as if I'm spitting in the face of my Lord while picturing him on the cross. It works for me. I pick up the chains and put them on for Jesus, not back into my own behavior. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's end, eternal life. By the way, right there, I want you to write Galatians 5.22 because in Galatians 5.22, it talks about the fruit, the fruit that you get by having Jesus in your life. Check out that list. If you start living those things out, you're going to be a pretty amazing person. It goes on and finishes up this way. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am not dead. I'm not dead. Becoming God's slave allows the Holy Spirit to work deeply into my life. Are you willing to let him do the work? I begin to find evidence of that fruit in my life. People begin to say, wow, I see this in you. I live out life here on earth as I would live out eternity. I live out character qualities, but I also use my body in a way that God wills. I am not dead. Many people say they have the right to do whatever they want to with their bodies. Not once I become a Christian, because when I become a Christian, I realize God owns my body. This is an apartment in which I live, and I don't want, I don't want when it's all done for someone to say, man, he misused that gift. He did a bad job of building it back up. If you live in a building owned by somebody else, you try not to violate the building rules. And because your body belongs to God, you can't violate his rules too, his standards for living. So I want to pursue that. Then I want to come to this fourth word, and it's privilege. See, we went from power to privilege, the same two things that the Roman church was struggling with, and this last one, privilege, is this. It reminds me of this awesome change that God has, has done in my life. And in a few minutes, we're going to take communion, and, and we're going to spend that little bit of time reflecting on the fact that I have this amazing power at work in my life, that my penalty is paid for, that I can pursue God's life, and I have this privilege of being called God's kid. I'm his kid. Wages are something earned and deserved for work, but what I deserve for living against God is my sin and is death. But under grace, I get life. So what somebody else wrote about this. The grace factor was huge for me. I've known Jesus since I was a child, but growing up in a religious, that's right, religious, rule filled church, I didn't really discover grace until I was in my 20s. Thank God, literally, I don't have to be perfect. He is. Of course, showing grace and forgiveness is a blessing too. <clears throat> because of Christ's death and resurrection, his followers need never fear death. <clears throat> that's one of the things that we can know. And one of the reasons for our baptism is that sense of being reminded that I have a place in the kingdom of God. There's a place that I can point to. There's an event that I submitted to that I allow God to change my life. So here's my question for you today. What would our church look like if we really lived out this grace? If we really lived out this grace that we don't have the power, God does, that he pays the penalty, not me, that I pursue his life and, and that I have the privilege of being called his child what would that church look like I want you to take your program and write down one or two words that would just describe white oak and then we ask the question what am I doing about bringing that about in just a few minutes we're going to reflect on the death burial and resurrection of Jesus through our communion time and as I said earlier take the cups hold on to them and we'll take them all together when Zach prays and gives us a short devotional time there. You may be asking questions about baptism. I'll be up here at the end of the service and would love to talk to you about that. Maybe, maybe you need to find out more about grace and you need to be a part of Jack Cottrell's Tuesday night group. We had about 65 here this last Tuesday. I'd love to see 100 the next time on October the 8th. You can sign up for that. Or maybe you need to go to the hub and to find out how to be involved in ministry because of what Jesus has done in your life. Would you pray with me, please? Father, it's in this moment that we're reminded again that we go into this world telling of your tender mercy and your healing power. Lord, we know that we are experiencing, those of us who are Christians, life that is granted by your death alone. And so empower us to share what you've done. Father, let us live out the truth of this word. I am not dead. You make me alive. And like people with a new lease on life, let us dance and sing to you, our King. May we raise an alleluia to you. May we have every morning on our lips the words hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And Father, in the midst of this life, may we bring life to others with this message